No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, NFL writer Kevin Seifert says that the league has a problem with instant replay on pass interference calls. I think they screwed it up, to put it bluntly, because regardless of the of what they explained, the reality has been, unfortunately, that the standard for overturning it is almost unreachable. And former Major Leaguer Doug Glanville explains why the Washington Nationals have had the perfect strategy this postseason. The playoff format has served them well because you have all these days off. And what you're allowed to do is apply rest as needed. They were able to use some of their starters in relief. And you have to compliment Dave Martinez on getting the right strategy at the right time. Plus, Craig Ellenport details some of the most important moments in NFL history. The greatest game ever played, the 1958 NFL championship game between the Baltimore Colts and New York Giants. Number two is Super Bowl three, and Joe Namath and the guarantee. Number three, the AFL-NFL merger, which changed the entire landscape of the league and of pro football. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking to the former major leaguer Doug Glanville about the baseball playoffs and his new position teaching sports and society. But first, we're joined by one of our favorite and most frequent guests, He is the author of Full Dissidence, Notes from an Uneven Playing Field. He is an ESPN senior writer, our old friend Howard Bryant. Howard, thank you for joining us. Good morning, Jeremy. How are you doing? Good. Uh, it's, it's been, uh, it's been an interesting, if that's the right word, couple of weeks, obviously, at the intersection of sports and society. And as we sit here speaking, it's Wednesday morning, um, uh, what is it, October 16th, something like that. Uh, LeBron James is very much in the news, of course, for the way he called out Daryl Morey, the Houston Rockets general manager, criticized Morey uh, for the tweet that Morey sent that sparked the firestorm about Hong Kong and China uh, nearly two weeks ago. And there's been a backlash against LeBron. Um, you know, LeBron is uh, uh, someone in the last few years, of course, who has been uh, a champion of social justice issues here in the United States. This week, he's getting criticized um, from a lot of different quarters about his response. What did you make of it, Howard? Well, I think first it was just worth compartmentalizing a few different things. First of all, I think LeBron's wrong on this. I completely um, disappointed with his response for a couple of reasons, but not completely. But ultimately, I think he's wrong. But I think you have to compartmentalize three things. I think the first thing is you have to sort of recognize that I think LeBron is right in the regard that he and the players rightfully understood that Daryl Morey's tweets were going to have an avalanche that was going to create an avalanche that was going to fall on them. And the responsibility suddenly, because we know that the players, are the, they are the front of the league. They are the face of the league. No one's going to be tracking down you know, Tillman for Titter, no one's going to be tracking down Joe, Joe Sy or Dalmore to ask them about this. They're going to come to the players. They're the most visible ones. They're going to go to 
Steph Curry and they're going to go to LeBron James and they're going to ask the players what they think of this. So I understood that LeBron certainly wanted a, a response from Adam Silver. And I don't think that was inappropriate at all. I think that was actually wise. I think that was very smart of him to say, listen, when these things happen, regardless of how they happen, we're the ones who are going to take the fall on this or we're going to be the ones asking questions for something that we didn't create. I, I actually had no issue with that at all. The second thing that had to be that had to be understood in this is that my feeling as to one of the reasons why LeBron and the players were receiving so much backlash is what I just consider to be a very anti-player, anti-black response in linking the players fighting for social justice here with them not fighting for social justice in Hong Kong. I mean, what is the reason for that link? Considering that so many companies do business in China, so many leagues are involved in in China and that they have relationships. You've got the ATP and the WTA. They're both over in China right now doing the almost the entire Asian swing is, is a large part of it is in China. The women's year end championships with Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams and Simona Halep and all those great players and Ashley Barty. They're all going to be over in China for their year end championships. So the fact that you automatically are going to link, well, hey, you know, if you guys fought for in, in Ferguson or if you fought Eric, for Eric Garner, how come you're not fighting for Hong Kong is nonsense because there are so many different fights around the world that, that, that nobody gets involved in. And to, to link the players to every global issue around the world struck me as, as punitive. It struck me as penalizing these players for having the nerve to stand up for themselves in America, and especially when they weren't even largely supported for standing up for themselves here. So now you're going to throw them into a, a geopolitical situation that is not necessarily something that they may be well-versed in. Uh, I thought that was unfair to the players. But the third thing that I think also needed to be understood in this was at the end of the day, I think that you are dealing with the human rights issue. And at the very least, you had to acknowledge that. And that's what bothered me about LeBron is that at the end of the day, whether it was his original comments, whether it was his follow-up comments, or whether it was the follow-up to the follow-up, he never really acknowledged that people are getting killed over there. And he never really acknowledged the fact that no matter how much this inconvenienced him or took money out of his pocket or made the league look bad or put the players in a bad spot, at the end of the day, you do also have to acknowledge something really, really awful is happening over there. And there's a human element to that. Is it not his fight? Easily, he could have said that, and that's fine. Is it something that's over his head? Absolutely. Did it bother him because they're losing money? Sure, all of those things are true. But you also, if you're going to be a champion of these things, you do have to think beyond yourself. Because I think that the the real ammo that he gave a lot of people, not that anybody needs any more ammo, is that's the same argument that a lot of white people use in the United States when you're thinking about being an ally to some of the issues that are taking place that aren't necessarily in your immediate sphere. Hey, it's not my problem. What will be the long-term effect of what happened this week for LeBron James's legacy? Well, I don't know what the long-term effect is going to be. Hopefully what the long-term effect is going to be is clarity. I think that one of the things that we need to do when we're thinking about complicated subjects 
is to think critically about those complicated subjects. I think that my one of my initial thoughts of all of this is that look, LeBron James is a businessman. It's one of the questions that I was making in my last book in the Heritage. At the end of that book, I asked the question, these players are multi-billion dollar components to a global economy now. Can they even be expected to be at the forefront of social justice? How can you, how do you become, how do you protest what you've become? These are the real issues that are going to take place. Can, can you be the protester and the power at the same time? And these, these tensions never go away when you're talking about ownership versus management in a capitalistic society. So I think that what I would like to see from this is clarity. We don't need LeBron James to save the world at every, every turn. We don't need celebrity necessarily to always have an opinion on things. I think LeBron James, you know, as much as he accused Daryl Morey of being misinformed on this, I think he also overspoke. There was no reason for him to take this as far as he did, because I'm sure he's not as deeply uh, invested or interested in the geopolitics of Hong Kong and China and doesn't even know. He doesn't know how much Daryl Morey knows. So I bet you he's as uneducated on this as he accused other people to be. And that's okay. If you are the face of the league and you are its most famous player, you're the most famous basketball player on the planet, and uh, you are profiting from um, working in China the way that LeBron James is, is there an obligation to know what's going on? Yes, there absolutely is. And I think LeBron does know what's going on. And I think when you listen to his his comments yesterday and you read Dave McMenamin's story as well, I think it was very, very clear that LeBron is very upset with Dal Morey for messing with everybody's money. And that if a player had done that, the repercussions would be severe. And that Daryl Morey has been allowed to hide. And I think that LeBron, what I took from what LeBron was saying was when he said, look, not everything is everybody's problem. What he was saying was, you know, good luck to the people of Hong Kong. That's not my issue. My issue is what happens back home. So he he wasn't taking that that responsibility. But that didn't mean he he wasn't he was informed as much as he wanted to be on that issue. And I think the area where he wanted to be informed was, okay, what's our bottom line here? What's our reason for being here? And we lost a lot of money here because of one guy. Howard Bryant is a senior writer for ESPN. His new book, which you can pre-order now, is Full Dissidence, Notes from an Uneven Playing Field. Uh, Howard, it's always a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this uh, interesting week at the intersection of sports and society. A very revealing one. Thank you, Jerry. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. And if you've been paying attention to the National Football League through the first third of the season, you've probably noticed there have been some controversies when it comes to officiating to help break it down. Tell us what's really going on. We welcome ESPN senior NFL writer Kevin Seifert. Kevin, after what happened Monday night with the Packers and the Lions, um, what were people in the league and around the league saying? Uh, you know, they were wishing it didn't happen, certainly, but I don't think people in the league are as alarmed by any one particular game that as the fans who, who are of those two teams and also the audience, which happened to be a national TV audience was, uh, they view whether it's right or wrong, fair or not, they view officiating as a constantly escalating and de-escalating issue that 
some days you have good games and some days you have bad games. I think there are a lot of people who are wondering if the pass interference replay review thing is going to last. But in terms of them missing calls on illegal hands to the face and, and that sort of thing, I do not think there was quite the level of alarm inside the league as there was outside. We're speaking with Kevin Seifert. Of course, the pass interference replay, um, what is it, clear? Well, what is the language they're using? It has clear, clear and obvious. Clear and obvious, which hasn't been as clear and obvious as everyone thought it might be. Uh, and you reported uh, going into that Monday night game, I think it was coaches had lost 24 of their last 25. Do I have the numbers right? 24 that of their last right. 25 yep. challenges. Yeah. So what, is th- what does that say about what's going Going on here, it tells me that the NFL doesn't want coaches to challenge uh, pass interference, and even though they passed the rule that allows them to do it, it seems like they only want to have that rule in place to give them a safety net when there's a unbelievably egregious, awful, you know, go outside in the middle of the street and scream type miscall that really has massive implications, like the NFC Championship game. And I can understand that, and I think that's actually probably the only way reviewing subjective calls could work. But the problem is when they presented the rule and when they updated coaches and really even media members and fans from uh, over the spring and the summer and the off season, they made it out as if they were going to be much tighter on what was clear and obvious than what has actually been the case. If they had from the start said, it's only going to be like the worst calls ever that we overturn, then I think the, level of outrage wouldn't be nearly as high as it is now. But why wouldn't that message just be communicated? I don't know through which channels or what meeting the competition committee just say, hey, this is not meant to be a tool to overturn every uh, grabbing and clutching downfield, but only when it's an egregious kind of mugging. I think they screwed it up, to put it bluntly. They that <laughs> That's blunt. What happened was you know, Al Riveron, who's in charge of uh, officiating for the NFL, went around with videos to, to try to give people an idea, which is what he should have done. You know, Give people an idea of here's what we're going to overturn, here's what we're not going to overturn, so that coaches and broadcasters and even fans would know what was coming. And one of the plays that he used was, if you go back to the Super Bowl last year between the uh, Rams and the Patriots, there was a deep pass to Brandon Cooks and the Patriots cornerback Stephon Gilmore was in coverage and he sort of grabbed him beforehand. Cooks couldn't make the catch, but they didn't call pass interference. And this was one where he, where Al Riveron said, if somebody challenges that moving forward, we would actually overturn this type of call. And it wasn't a complete mugging. He did get there early, but it wasn't the type of thing where he just tackled him and, and you know, pounded his head into the ground three seconds before the, the ball got there. So it wasn't egregious, but it was pretty obvious that he had done it. So that was the type of call people thought would be overturned. And that's why there were so many challenges from coaches trying to get calls like that overturned. And then they didn't, they didn't do it. And so like, regardless of the, of what they explained, the reality has been, unfortunately, that, that, uh, that the standard for overturning it is almost, uh, you know, almost unreachable. We're speaking with Kevin Seifert of ESPN about officiating in the NFL. And of course, you know, the, the old saw is that, you know, you could call holding on every play and I guess you could call pass interference basically on every passing play. So, so these are all shades of gray. These are all matters of interpretation. It's all about, you know, uh, the way the league decides it's going to, uh, officiate these things. It, to me, Kevin, it all comes back to the idea that um, the cameras are just too good. There are too many of them now. 
Uh, they're too good. The high definition is too good. It's only getting better. The ability for television crews to put more cameras at every game because the technology is getting less expensive, uh, you know, uh, progressively. It, 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 I, is officiating any different or is it merely our ability to see precisely what is happening on the field that has exposed officials in a way that they have not been in the past? I think, Jeremy, in the very biggest picture that more the bigger part of the issue is the technology and that we can see a lot more mistakes and a lot more gray area than we used to be able to see you know especially you know when we were growing up you know I remember watching games in the 1980s when like they wouldn't even always show you know a replay of any, of a of a big yeah. it just wasn't part of the of the of the environment and so certainly there was um there's there's part of that but I do think and I think there's a lot of people in the NFL who would agree to this if you put a lie detector in that there's been a a snowballing of several unrelated factors that have really conspired to put a dent in the quality of officiating across the board. Uh, you know, a few of those are that there's been a lot of turnover. When you look at, at the leadership of officiating, probably in the past 10 years, there's been four guys in charge, Mike Pereira, Dean Blandino, Carl Johnson, and now Al Riveron. That is something to consider. In the past two years alone, seven referees have retired, uh, you know, the actual crew chiefs, and they are the most important guy on the field. And so you have seven new referees in two years, and I think it's 11 in the past six or seven years. And so you've had tremendous turnover in the most important positions of officiating. And a lot of those guys came into the league with not nearly as much experience as, as has been typical uh, there used to be a training program that existed for officials that uh, retired officials would join the league's front office and work to mentor and train young officials. That's largely gone away. And they tried to do the full-time thing and that uh, for, for like 20% of officials, and that has um, been, been carted aside. And so uh, you add all those things up, and I think it's, you know, it's undeniable that that has also had an effect on the quality um, of the game, uh, quality of officiating, but uh, it's probably not as big of a factor as technology, but it's certainly part of what's going on. Kevin Sievert, uh, we hope it's a, a clean week of officiating in the NFL. Don't know if we could handle another messy one. And, and we're speaking before Thursday night. Who knows if something happens Thursday night, but it's a <laughs> <I know>. pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for joining us, Kevin. Well, thanks for having me, Jeremy. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. We are in the middle of the baseball postseason. The Washington Nationals are going to the World Series as we sit here now. We don't know if they're going to be playing the Houston Astros or the New York Yankees, but it is the first time a Washington team will be in the World Series since 1933 when they lost to the New York Giants. To discuss baseball and other things in the world of sports right now, we welcome our old friend, our colleague, a pen man, Doug Glanville. Doug, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. When we think of the Nationals up until this point in their history, since moving from uh, Montreal, we think of a team that never quite, of course, got there, that uh, underperformed, that um, uh, couldn't handle pressure when it was applied. What there's one obvious difference this year, but but it can't all be about uh, Bryce Harper. What's the difference with this year's Nationals? You know, they they were 19 and 31 earlier in the year, and that you know there was seemingly no hope. Uh, Dave Martinez, their manager, was on the hot seat, 
And they were able to reset. For starters, a few of their key hitters were hurt at the time. They got healthy at the same time, sort of in a good way. And, you know, their pitching uh, found a way to gel. Even though their bullpen had struggled epically during the year, their starters started to come into their own. You think of Steven Strasburg, who early on in his career was shut down before the postseason because of an innings limit. And he came into his own where he's in the Cy Young conversation. So all that came together, and you found a team in the back end of this that was number one in the National League in on-base percentage. So they work counts. They understand how to get on. They drive in runs. Uh, they also had some top three pitchers who struck out over 200 batters this season, three in their rotation. So, um, And I think the playoff format has served them well because you have all these days off, and what you're allowed to do is you know, apply rest as needed. They were able to use some of their starters in relief. Uh, so Scherzer relieved Strasburg, Strasburg relieved Scherzer. You know. So they're, they're kind of old school in that way because back in the 80s, these starters went eight, nine innings. They're finding ways to do it by mostly focusing on their starters in relief. So uh, with these days off, that plays very well for them. And you have to compliment Dave Martinez on getting the right strategy at the right time. We're speaking with Doug Glanville, the former major leaguer, about the baseball playoffs. And, uh, you know, for it, it, it's hard not to um, think of these nationals and in some ways think about the Mariners um, back in, I guess it was 2000, right, when it was their first season without Alex Rodriguez after he had gone uh, to Texas for the biggest contract at that point in the history of sports. And uh, the team, although it didn't reach the World Series, won, what was it, 116 regular season games or something like that, the record. And and, and having and, – and there's something about and, – and, and Bryce Harper uh, – has been a great player. Uh, he's not the best player in baseball over the last few years. That would be Mike Trout. But is there something about, is there a parallel to be drawn about how a team can find, of course, Ichiro came to that team in 2001 too. There were a lot of changes, but is there something about like the guy that all the buzz is about leaving that forces the rest of a team perhaps to elevate itself in some ways? Oh, absolutely. There, there's no question that Harper is an impact player. Uh, but he came with a monstrous price tag over three hundred million dollars, and you know he's a he's a fiery guy. He's he's all in, and he's you know sometimes finds himself in trouble. You know with with uh, the, the umpires or just the frustrations boil over. Highly competitive, and a lot of that on paper is translated generally well in terms of his performance. But he's not like you said with Mike Trout, who hits three hundred every year. Harper, you know, hit two fifty. Two, you know, he has these kind of lower batting averages, but he gets on base a lot. Just a, a dangerous hitter, but not consistent. And and all of a sudden, when he was gone, you know, they had an opportunity to come together in a different way, where all these pieces had to rise. And a guy like Anthony Rendon, their third baseman, is now in the MVP conversation, had a phenomenal season. Uh, so there is something to it. And, and sometimes star power is, you know, you draw fans, it's a big ticket item, they're, they're media darlings, all these things. It doesn't necessarily mean this is the guy that's going to win us a championship. And uh, it's worked out exceptionally well. Uh, Harper goes out the door, and they find themselves in the World Series. We're speaking with Doug Glanville about the baseball postseason, the Nationals going to the World Series, Washington in the World Series for the first time in almost 
90 years going back to the old senators and the rebooted senators. And Doug, you have um, some exciting news. Um, this fall, you are uh, at UConn. You're starting a new program, which gets started in the spring. You're in kind of an observational role, I understand, uh, this fall, starting a new program at UConn about the study of sports and society. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Very, yeah, very excited about it. A couple of years ago, I was trying to feed off of my experience working with the Players Association when I was playing. I was on the executive subcommittee with Don Fear in the union, and I, I was fascinated by the, the relationship between labor, law, and baseball, and collective bargaining. So I did a lot of research, and it, when issues started to arise uh, with the discussion about athletes who are sort of engaging in activism or discussing social issues, and you always heard the, you know, the stick to sports camp, uh, that was something that was difficult for me to accept because I grew up in a town in Teaneck, New Jersey that voluntarily desegregated in the 60s and I watched the 70s come along and people working together across historically divisive lines and sports became the centerpiece uh, of an opportunity to have a forum of constructive engagement. Uh, The best of sports allows you to work with teammates from different backgrounds for one goal. The best of sports, you know, has us follow rules that are supposed to be fair and equitable. And that tone seemed to be a good way into a lot of the friction and tension we tend to have when we're discussing social issues and, and sometimes political issues. And, you know, so through that lens, I started to work on this course two years ago. And initially it was maybe I could work with players in, in Major League Baseball Players Association. Maybe I can be a liaison through, in sports. And then I looked at it and I said, this is a course. So I started at my alma mater, University of Pennsylvania, and their Annenberg School of Communication. They gave me an opportunity. Really loved it. I had 42 students. And then Yale brought me in last year in the political science department. I continued to refine the course. And uh, absolutely loved it. The feedback was excellent. I learned just as much from the students. And I was able to dig up a lot of current events and news around uh, athletes that are speaking on issues, sports, and where the roles are. I get into First Amendment, constitutional law. I get into um, you know the, the strategies behind communication, social media. And, and it's very open to different ideologies and ideas. I want us all to be able to come together. And UConn gave me this chance to see it in a, a bigger way than just the classroom and my, you know, 20 to 40 students. I'm able to work with a group in the sports management department of the School of Education, and uh, and I have a, access to incredible athletes and, and strong national programs that are always, you know, sort of working in these social spaces. So uh, so I'm, I'm excited about that. It, it collides and converges a lot of things that I've been passionate about. And I've had personal experiences that I felt I could share that can help uh, add to that conversation for the students. As we discussed earlier in the show this week, a lot going on uh, in the last two weeks since the Daryl Morey tweet really sparking this firestorm um, about sports and about athletes and social activism and um, what what we can expect from them, what we can demand from them, what we can't expect from them. What kind of a teaching moment uh, would this have been if you had classes this week? Oh, absolutely. And, and I would have 100% brought this into the course. Um, well, I think one fundamental thing I work on is being informed. You know, that that is a, a great first step to trying to understand 
the issues. And, and it's fair to not know. You know there's, there's so much out there, there's so much nuance. You look at Hong Kong and China, these challenges, um, you know, there's a long storied history that's not simple. And, um, and certainly we understand that there's political ramifications. Sometimes things are just politicized to make them have ramifications politically um, in, in a polarized way. But there's often consequences financially and business and all these coming together makes for a very challenging uh, position. You know, and I speak a lot in the class about absolutely you have a First Amendment right in the United States of America. Um, but however, they don't have, they have the right to not employ you. I mean, so you can speak, nobody's saying you can't, it's just, there are consequences and there's impacts and it may be worth it. It may be a trade-off. It may be a lot of things. So, um, we're constantly trying to understand and refine our constitution, our laws, and most of it's through the courts. And so I would use that moment to discuss, you know, okay, the GM tweeted this out on the Houston Rockets, a ripple effect in China brought into you know, Hong Kong and what's happening currently there. And we need to understand all these perspectives. We need to look at it. So I would look at it through these different lenses. I would take opinion pieces and pull together a different points of view on the issue. And then I'd look at the political implications and then how to move forward. And LeBron James gets in the middle of this. Uh, what does that mean? What can he do in the next steps? How important is this communication strategy? Uh, so it's a very holistic look and a patient look where we can dissect it. Uh, one of my students said to me, I was, she was so happy to find a space where we can patiently and respectfully walk through these issues and really understand the deeper dives on it and know that it's not necessarily simple, but we can still elevate humanity as a primary goal throughout regardless. And I thought that was something that stuck with me when she said that. Well, I'm sure it's going to be a, a great experience for the students who get to take uh, the courses and the new program that you're running at UConn. And uh, we thank you, as always, for your insights. Doug Glanville, the former major leaguer and now running uh, the program at UConn on Sports and Society. Doug, thanks for joining us. All right, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. The NFL is celebrating its 100th season. And to commemorate the anniversary NFL 100 has just been published. The greatest moments of the NFL century edited by Craig Ellenport with a forward by Troy Aikman. And Craig Ellenport joins us now to discuss the NFL in its 100th season. So, Craig, the way you formatted this book, uh, you know, it's not a history of the league. It's it's about 100 moments, which, you know, when, whenever you make a list, people love lists. Uh, and it generates controversy, which is part of the goal. It's easy, you know, the top 20 or 25, but then, you know, you're going to have some arguments. How did you go about compiling this list? Well, you know, I thought about the, the, the idea of celebrating 100 years and you've got any list of the best players and the best games and all these things. I, I brought, put them all together. And that's that's what made it even harder to, to figure out the order was this is great games, great moments, great players and coaches, but also important moments off the field. Um, you know, I mean, look, I had the birth of NFL films number four on this list. I mean, things like that and Monday Night Football and legal things that happened later on. Right. In terms of an order and figuring it out, you know, I just I, I put together this big list gave a general idea at the beginning of what kind of order it might be. And as I started writing it, things 
sort of took shape. I mean, I would write something and say, well, you know, this, as I'm writing it, feels a lot more important than other people might think. And so I had to move it up or bump it down. And, and again, as you said, it's up for debate. So anybody can argue and question some of these being too high or too low. It just, it felt right as I was putting it together. NFL 100, the greatest moments of the NFL century. And uh, I, I will, I will leave it to you to reveal what is, what is number one? Uh, it, it, nothing, nothing too surprising. The greatest game ever played, the 1958 NFL championship game between the Baltimore Colts and New York Giants, but one of the, you know, in a nationally televised championship game, which at the time was unheard of and the first ever sudden death overtime football game. So no one had ever seen anything like it. Um, you know, it's interesting and, and I'll full disclosure on here, give out the, the top three, which uh, you know, so number two is Super Bowl three, and Joe Namath and the Guarantee. Number three, the AFL NFL merger, which had such an impact and changed uh, the entire landscape of the league and of pro football. And it, it's funny because those three things all sort of go together. One goes into the other, and even if you don't uh, don't agree that those would be one, two, and three, they're certainly in everybody's top five or certainly top ten, and. You know, after the NFL's great, after the greatest game ever played in '58, the the excitement, the the buzz about pro football around the nation changed. I mean, it completely electrified interest, and that's what led owners, potential NFL owners who couldn't get an NFL team, to start the AFL, and that, of course, led to uh, the merger, and it led to Joe Namath and and the Jets winning Super Bowl three. So these things always intertwine and. And the other thing as I was putting it together that interested me was the fact that the number one and number two things on the list, those two games, the 58 title game and Super Bowl three, the same winning coach, Weeb Eubank. Yeah, if we extrapolate, I mean, those three things that you have one, two and three, we then have to come to the conclusion that Weeb Eubank is, if not the greatest, the most consequential coach, if not figure in the annals of pro football. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, he, he is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It's not that he doesn't get his due, but maybe he does deserve a little more credit, um, you know, in terms of uh, recognition for what he did. And, and it was interesting, too, in, in that Super Bowl three um, item as I researched it. I mean, everybody knows about Joe Namath and the guarantee, and everyone knows that, you know, it, it was, a you know, defense played a big part in that game for the Jets. Uh, in low 16-7, right? That's right. That's right. And, you know, Matt Snell rushed for 100 yards. I mean, it was a total team effort for the Jets. But one thing as I was researching this, Weeb Eubank was supremely confident. I mean, he didn't open his mouth like Joe Namath did, but he was very confident about this game. And his players felt that confidence. And he had, a, he had, I mean, of course, as the head coach of that team, had so much to do with them winning that game. We're speaking with Craig Ellenport, the author of NFL 100, the greatest moments of the NFL century. Of course, it's the 100th season of the National Football League. The forward is by Troy Aikman. And, you know, it's all about Super Bowl III. Um, Weeb Eubank, who won that game in 58 as the head coach of the Baltimore Colts, then defeated his old team as the head coach of the New York Jets in Super Bowl III, which... Um, which made the merger, what, what is the right way to describe it? Because, you know, it's one of those things, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly, you know, somewhat of a football historian, but not on your level. You know, everybody says that the Jets had to win Super Bowl three to validate the merger. Is that really true? Like, what happens if they lose that game to the Colts by, by a well, touchdown? 
I mean, I know yeah. the first well, two were blowouts, but but what does it really make? What's the difference? Well, the the merger was already in place. Right. It legitimized the merger, right, and validated your word is is, is also uh, you know useful and correct. Um, it, it's interesting because another item on this list is Super Bowl four and the Kansas City Chiefs winning Super Bowl four, and, and that piled on to it because I mean, look. Even after Joe Namath's guarantee and the Jets' victory in Super Bowl three, there were plenty of NFL uh, mainstays who said, well, it's a fluke, and mm. that's not going to happen again. So as much as Super Bowl three legitimized and validated the merger, Super Bowl four really brought the league, this new league with the AFL and NFL together, um, saying, hey, you know, we've got something here with a lot of really good teams. So so that was very important as well. Before we let you go, Craig, I just want to, uh, you know, I'm not expecting you to necessarily defend or, or assail my choice, but there's only one greatest <laughs> play in NFL history, and that's David Tyree's catch. If that play had happened in the first quarter in week one, it would have been unbelievably spectacular to hold on to it in that moment with the game on the line and 75 seconds to play. Or, or well, that wouldn't have been the first quarter, but you know what I mean. And this was with 75 seconds to play in the Super Bowl against a team that was 18-0. and 0. That's the greatest play ever. I can't argue with you on that, Jeremy. I can't. And, and you know, number 20 in the book is, <laughs> it's not just the catch. It, it, and you're right, it, because it, it is in the context of what it did. And the Patriots closing in on that perfect season. So, I mean, a, a, a huge, huge upset, an amazing play, and the, the ruining a perfect season in the process. It was so, so vital, obviously. Craig Allen Ford's new book is NFL 100, The Greatest Moments of the NFL Century. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.